Well, it really has been several weeks uh, since we were together in our verse-by-verse study through the, the book of Luke. And the last time that we were together, we were reading the story about Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. That's funny. We, I just returned to my hometown, and it was a joyous welcome. So far, none of you have tried to drag me out to the edge of the cliff, and, but the service isn't over. So, but it wasn't that way for Jesus, was it? You know, by the time Jesus returned to his, his hometown, he, I mean, he was, a, he was, word was spreading all around about Jesus, right? People had heard about his teachings. They'd heard about his miracles. And, and so what started out as a, a hometown hero's welcome ended with the people dragging him out to the edge of the cliff in Nazareth to throw him down and kill him. They were so angry. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, and they were so angry about his suggestion that the gospel, the good news, was going to be available, and the blessings and favor of God were going to go to Gentiles, non-Jews. And they didn't like that. They couldn't stand the thought of such a thing. They hated Gentiles, and so they dragged him out, and they tried to kill him. But they were unsuccessful. They were unsuccessful. Luke doesn't tell us how, but somehow Jesus was miraculously delivered from their hands. In Luke chapter 4, verse 30, which was the last verse we looked at last time, Luke simply says, but passing through their midst, he went away. I don't know. I would love to know what that looks like. You know, they're like trying to kill him and he just like, see ya. Like, how did he get away? I don't know. And that's where we left off. Well, this morning, we're going to pick up our study in verse 31 of chapter 4. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, Luke is going to provide us with a snapshot, a snapshot of the various types of ministry that Jesus was engaged in. As we make our way through this passage, we're going to see Jesus. He's going to be teaching in the synagogue. By the way, in case I fail to say this at any point during the message, you just need to know that his teaching ministry was the main focus of his ministry. It's easy to think that it was all about the miracles, but for Jesus, his main commitment was to the teaching of truth, to proclaiming the gospel, opening people's eyes to see the truth of God's word from Genesis through Malachi, because that's all that had been written at that point, and, and preparing the way for what would be written Matthew to Revelation, but it was all about his teaching. But we're going to see him. We're going to be seeing him teaching in the synagogue. We're going to see him healing the sick. We're going to see him confronting the forces of evil, and we're going to see him making time to be alone with his father. This morning, we are going to get a glimpse of, it's literally just one day in the ministry of Jesus the Messiah, and it's it's a full, full day. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And in this opening scene, we're going to see Jesus teaching the people in the synagogue. Verse 31 says, and he went to or went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Now, a few weeks ago, we read that Jesus made it his practice to regularly attend the synagogue 
and teach the people. This is what he was doing. He was traveling between the villages, visiting the synagogues, and, and teaching the people. Verse 16 in the same chapter says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the first thing that I want you to see as we begin our study this morning is that Jesus did not allow the rejection that he experienced in Nazareth to keep him from sharing the truth with others. After the people from his hometown rejected him, they even tried to kill him, Jesus continued his ministry of teaching in the synagogues. It would have been pretty easy for him to say, you know what, that almost got me killed last week. Maybe I'll try a different approach. But he didn't. And those of you who have shared your faith with others, you know that sometimes people will not only reject the truth, sometimes they can even be hostile towards it, right? Have you experienced that in your own life? Some of you know what it's like to be rejected because of your faith in Christ. Some of you have lost friendships and relationships because of your faith in Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus, he warned his disciples that, that this would happen. He warned them, and he said that when this happens, this is what he said. He said, you should shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 5. It's the cultural equivalent of saying, wash your hands clean of the situation. You shared the truth. They rejected it. Wash your hands clean, and then move on and continue sharing the truth with others. You see, we have a commission from Jesus to continue sharing the good news of salvation that is available through Jesus. And we can't allow the fear of, of rejection, even hostility, to keep us from sharing the good news with others. It's, it's convicting to me because I wonder how, how willing am I to risk my own reputation? How willing am I, am I to, to risk the fear of rejection or people not liking me to share the truth with them? Jesus modeled this with his own life. He left Nazareth, he returned to Capernaum, and he continued to teach in the synagogues. <clears throat> Let's talk about... Capernaum for a few minutes. Uh, verse 31 says that Jesus went down to Capernaum, which was a city of Galilee. This was a, a city that Jesus had already spent time in. If you look back at verse 23, it, it was a place where he had already performed miracles. You remember that when he was in Nazareth, he said, you probably want me to perform miracles like I have done in Capernaum. As you can see on the map, Capernaum is a, is a city that is located on the northwestern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And the journey from Nazareth down to Capernaum was about 18 miles, and it was a descent. It was a walk down. Even though you can see on the map it's a travel northeast, it was literally a, a roughly 1,900-foot drop in altitude down to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sits at about 700 feet below sea level, and Nazareth is around 1,200 feet above. And so even though Jesus was traveling, again, northeast, he was literally, quite literally traveling down 18 miles. 
to Capernaum. And this city uh, of Capernaum was a large fishing and, and a uh, farming village that was situated on the crossroads of all the major uh, travel routes through Galilee at the time of Jesus. So all roads, you know, coming through Galilee to head towards Jerusalem or along the Via Maris, which is the, the road along the, the coast, would have come through Capernaum. And so consequently, not only was Capernaum a larger population than places like Nazareth, it was also a much more diverse mix of Jews and Gentiles who were living there. And as we continue our journey through the Luke's gospel, we're going to see that Capernaum was not only the home of several of Jesus' disciples. Peter was from Capernaum, his brother Andrew, James, John, and even Matthew, the tax collector. Capernaum was also, was also the home base or the, the hub for Jesus' earthly ministry. This was, this was the, the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, we're told that this is where Jesus lived. Matthew chapter 9, Capernaum is referred to as, quote, his own city. That's Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Many, many, many of the stories, uh, the miracles, the teachings, all of those that we read about in the gospel, many, many, many of those take place here in Capernaum. And so... As was his custom, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, if you visit Capernaum today, one of the most prominent sites that you're going to see is this fourth century synagogue that was the centerpiece of the city. And directly beneath this synagogue that you see on on, on the screen, in the the bottom right-hand corner, archaeologists have uncovered the walls and the floor of the first century synagogue that was directly below the one that was built, uh, built later. Which means that, you know, standing there, in, in the picture you're looking on the bottom right, this is the location where the stories that we're reading about today took place. Verse 32, we read that when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, the people were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Jesus' teaching was, was, it was noticeably different than the other scribes and teachers that, that, that they were used to. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, as Mark is telling the same story, he says, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You know, most of the teachers of Jesus' day, they would teach and they would explain the scriptures by quoting the opinions of the more prominent rabbis who had come before them. And so they would read a passage and then they would say something like, you know, according to Rabbi Hillel, this means this. But according to Rabbi Shammai, well, this could also mean this. They would rarely ever venture an opinion of their own. And at the risk of doing the same thing, let me go ahead and quote (laughs) what somebody else has to say um, about the teachers of their day. Pastor and author Kent Hughes says this about, about the teachers in their synagogues. Their teachers, mostly Pharisees, were in bondage to quotation marks 
They love to quote authorities. Their teaching was a chain of references. It was secondhand theology, petty, legalistic, joyless, boring, and weightless, end quote. Wow, tell us what you really think, <laughs> Dr. Hughes. But that's not the way it was with Jesus, is it? Jesus was the divine author of God's word. He knew God's word better than anyone who ever came before him or anyone who has come after him. And he explained the, the scriptures with an undeniable authority. Instead of stringing together quotes from all their teachers, Jesus said things like this. You have heard it said this, 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 and this, right? But I say to you, right? And then Jesus would then elaborate and, and explain things in such a way that he consistently challenged their understanding of the scriptures and he pushed them deeper into the application of God's word in their lives. Second Timothy, Paul said, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then Paul challenged Timothy in chapter two. He said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then he charged Timothy later in chapter four, verses two through four, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort and complete, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, we don't need someone to tickle our ears, to tell us what we want to hear. What we need is the truth of what God's word says. That's what Jesus brought to the people. You know, our lives and, and, and our ministries need to be firmly anchored in the authority of God's word. The prevailing question that each one of us needs to be asking, no matter what situation we might be going through, is what does God's word have to say about this? It's not, you know, what does Chris think? It's not what does my small group leader think? It's not what does this author think or that author think or this worship leader or that worship leader or you name it, that whatever pastor on the radio. It's not what we think. It's not what you think. It's what does God's word have to say about this? You see, while there is certainly wisdom in seeking the counsel of godly men and women, that's wise. It's wise. But their counsel is only as good as the truth that it is anchored in. It must be anchored in the truth of God's word. And that's what Jesus gave them. And that's my responsibility as well, right? It doesn't matter what I think. It's what does God's word say? 
Well, the people, they were, they were just, they were astonished. They were astonished by the teaching of Jesus because his teaching was done with an authority unlike anyone they had ever seen. And so the first activity that we see Jesus engaged in in this passage is the teaching of God's word. And now, beginning in verse 33, we're going to look at the second activity of Jesus' ministry. Verse 33 says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Second activity of Jesus' ministry that we're going to see him engaged in in this passage is the confrontation with the forces of evil. As Jesus was teaching in the temple on that day, there was a man present who was possessed by a demon. It's interesting. We don't know who's in our presence when we gather, do we? You think they were like, oh, yeah, the demon-possessed guy is going to show up today, right? No, you don't know. We don't know what people are bringing in when we come to gather together. That's why it's important for us to be alert, sensitive, paying attention to the needs of the people around us. Let's talk about demons for a second, because I know that that is one of the things you love to talk about. What are they? Well, demons are, are fallen angels. They are unclean, evil spirits who rebelled with Satan against God. Satan himself is also a fallen angel. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, I love this verse, it's great. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. These fallen angels, these, these demons, these are, they're, they're enemies of God. They hate God. They, they hate him more than you can hate anything. That's how they feel about God. And they hate everything that God loves. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That means they hate you. They hate you. They hate your soul. They hate everything about you, and they want to destroy you for no other purpose other than the fact that you are beloved of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, it's interesting to, to be reminded of that. My battle is not with other human beings. My battle is, is, is with spiritual forces that they are either yielding to or not, right? Don't ever fall into the trap of hating people. God loves people and we need to love them as well. Book of 1 John, we're told that the reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. There is a very real spiritual battle being fought for the souls of mankind. It's real. You know, it's really, it's interesting. You know, you turn on award shows or you watch 
halftime shows or you turn on, I don't know, do they still have MTV? Does that still exist? I don't know. I'm old. Here's the thing. It is culturally popular, maybe cool, I don't know, to minimize and make fun of the belief in, in Satan. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letter, says that Satan is perfectly happy with one of two mistakes. One is to deny that he exists, and the other one is to overly obsess on him and to live in fear of him. He's happy with either one. But don't deny that he exists. He is a very real enemy. But as we see in this passage, neither Satan nor the demons are any match for Jesus, are they? I mean, he's powerful, but compared to Jesus, he's literally like an ant, right? He's nothing compared to Jesus, the Son of God. But can you imagine, can you imagine for a moment what this scene must have looked like? You know, Jesus is there teaching the people and everyone's, you know, hanging on his every word. This is the best teacher we've ever heard. They're so engaged. We just, I hope this service never ends. That's kind of how you're feeling right now. No. Not at all. They've never heard anything like that. But ah, before the service even comes to a close, Luke says that with a loud voice, this demon-possessed man cried out, Ha! Ha! I can't cry out quite like that today. In the Greek, this word is just two letters, and it can be translated in a few different ways. Many versions of the Bible translate it as, leave us alone, while others simply use an emotional interjection like, ha, or ah, which carries feelings of anger or dismay. But I have to tell you that it, it, no matter how you translate it, no matter how you translate it, if, if I was there that day, I am telling you, I would have fallen out of my chair. My, my heart would have stopped. I, can you imagine? I mean, it doesn't take much to, to, to spook me. My wife literally walked in as I'm brushing my teeth this morning. And I was like, ah, oh, whew. can't believe a person is here. <laughs> it's like we, we share a master bathroom. Like, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was. I can't imagine if I was sitting in front of the demon-possessed man who just jumps up and shouts out, ah, right? I mean, it's like terrifying. It must have jumped more than a few, a few people who were present that day. And after interrupting, the demon-possessed man asked two questions. First, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Which is really more of a rhetorical question. It's an expression that conveys the idea that we have nothing to do with each other. That's actually true. You know, Satan is the father of lies, but every once in a while he does speak truth. And apparently the demons as well. That is actually true. We have nothing to do with each other. Why are you bothering us is what they're asking. Why are you interfering with our business? Mind your own business, Jesus. Leave us alone. Now, I should point out that there are some differences of opinion as to who the us is in these verses. Is the demon referring to all of the people who were present that day? Like saying, Jesus, go away and leave us all alone, me and all these people. Or is the demon referring to the whole demonic 
realm. Maybe he's saying, leave all of us demons alone, Jesus. They, they recognize his authority, and they're like, stay away from us. Or a third option is that he may be referring to himself and this particular man that he has possessed. And this is actually the, the option that I lean towards, and I lean that way because of what happens next. His next question is, have you come to destroy us? Well, he doesn't think he's there to destroy the other people. Maybe he's there to destroy the, all the demons, right? Because that is going to happen. <clears throat> but, but after Jesus rebukes the demon and casts him out, Luke goes out of his way to emphasize the point that when the demon was cast out, he had done the man no harm. Verse 35 says, when the demon had thrown, uh, thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And Jesus, in that moment, whatever, whatever the demon meant by us, in that moment, Jesus displayed his authority and his power, not only over the demon to cast him out, but he displayed his authority and power to protect this man from that demon. The demon might have been saying like, hey, if you're going to destroy me, you're going to have to destroy him too. And Jesus is like, actually, no. <laughs> Come out. The, man the demon flees and, and, and the man falls to the ground unharmed. Jesus has total authority, not only in his teaching, but over the demonic realm, over the evil spirits. Verse 36, we read that they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Sometimes, I mean, Luke's a great writer. He writes with a lot of detail, more than other gospel writers even, and he, and he, he adds a lot of things that are really helpful. But sometimes I'm like, Luke, that is such an understatement, you know? The people were, they were blown away. Can you imagine? Not only were they blown away by his teaching, but blown away by what they've just seen with Jesus exercising with a word, authority and power over the forces of evil. This was clearly a synagogue service that you don't go home and forget. You know, like, hey, what, what happened at synagogue today? I don't know, I fell asleep, you know? <laughs> That's not this service, right? You can imagine when they left the synagogue that day, the, the first thing they did is they went to their friends and neighbors and said, I cannot believe you didn't go to synagogue today. You missed the best service. It was amazing. Jesus was there. He was teaching. It was unbelievable. And then this guy stands up and he's crazy. But Jesus healed him, cast out a demon, and he's okay now. It was unbelievable. What a service. And so verse 37 says, reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, before we continue, I do just, I want to point out one more thing about demons. One more thing. Because when we read a passage like this, it is not uncommon for people to wonder, you know, is it possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon? I mean, I don't want that, right? Makes sense. You read this, you're like, well, I hope that never happens to me. 
And the short answer I'll give is this. I, I believe that the answer is no. No, I don't believe that a Christian can be possessed by a demon because as a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that his Holy Spirit dwells within you. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is not gonna share his dwelling with an evil spirit. It's not gonna happen. But with that said, with that said, we need to understand that even though a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon, we are not immune from their attacks. We're not immune from their attacks. We're not immune from their deception. We're not immune from their desire to lead us into sin and to lead us away from the plans that God has for our lives. They want nothing more than to mislead you and misguide you, to make you doubt God's love for you. Which is why Paul urges believers in Ephesians chapter six to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He wouldn't have given you spiritual armor if you didn't need it, you know? There is a real demonic force. Satan is real, and he really does want to disrupt your life. But you don't have to let him. You don't have to let him. We do not need to be afraid of Satan. We do not need to be afraid of the demons. As Christians, we do not have to fear them because the enemy of our souls is always, 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 always subject to the authority of our Savior. Always. James chapter 2, we're told that, that demons, they not only know who God is, the Bible says in James chapter 2 that they actually fear him. They fear him. And so in verse 34, the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He knows he's in trouble. And as soon as the demon announces the truth about who Jesus is, Jesus commands the demon to be silent and he casts him out of the man. The enemy of our souls is always, always, always subject to the authority of our Savior. Well, it's been a pretty full day already for Jesus, right? I mean, this is a big day. Emotionally, I'm, I'm exa- I'm, I'd be exhausted, you know, just finished preaching and now I'm dealing with the enemy of, of our souls and Jesus has had a full day, but it's not over yet. The next uh, pa- section of this passage, Jesus is now gonna be healing the sick. Let's look at verse 38. Verse 38, we read, and he rose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now this is the house of, of, of Simon Peter. Simon's mother-in-law, and by the way, that means that if Simon had a mother-in-law, that means he had a, a, a wife, just making that clear. The first pope was married. Um, <laughs> he had a wife. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. As soon as Jesus leaves the synagogue, he makes his way over to Simon's house. Now, it is believed that Peter lived quite close to the synagogue. In fact, today, if you visit Capernaum, there's a Catholic church that has been built directly above what is believed to be the home of Simon Peter. And as you can see in the photo, that home is just a, a stone's throw away from the synagogue there on the right. 
walking out of the synagogue. You can almost picture them walking down the street and heading over to, to Simon's house. New modern church there kind of looks like a, I don't know, it looks like a spaceship, doesn't it? Maybe like, it's not the prettiest architectural building I've ever seen. Um, but thankfully, when they built it, at least they put it on like columns, elevated above the site so that there's still access um, for archaeologists to get in there. Um, you can see there underneath the structure now. And uh, actually inside the church, in the bottom right-hand corner, that's kind of a small picture for you to see, but they actually have a glass floor in the center of the church so you can look down into the, uh, what is believed to be the home uh, of Simon Peter. So when the synagogue service is over, Jesus is making his way over to Peter's house. In Mark's gospel, we're told that it's not just Peter that was with him. It was Peter and Andrew. And, he, and Mark tells us that James and John also went there with him. I point that out just so I, I want you to understand that, you know, in the next time, in the next chapter, when we're looking at Jesus calling some of his early disciples, it almost looks like this total stranger walks up and says, hey, come and follow me. And they're like, okay. And they just do it, right? But they know Jesus. He's been ministering in Capernaum. They've been listening to him teaching. They've seen him cast out demons. He's been in Peter's house for lunch. They're getting to know him. And then he comes to them and he invites them to step up their commitment and follow him. Okay? So anyway, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they're all going over to, to Peter's house for probably a, a lunch after the, the mid-morning Sabbath service. But when they get there, Simon's mother-in-law is sick. She's really sick. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that she had a fever, but Luke, who is not only a great historian, he's also a physician. Yeah. Luke writes, no, she had a high fever. Not just a fever, she had a high fever. She was very sick. He wants you to understand that this was serious. They were worried. They were concerned for Peter's mother-in-law. And so they appealed to Jesus and they said, would you heal her? It was a demonstration of their faith that Jesus had the authority not only to preach the word, not only to cast out demons, but they believed that Jesus had the authority and the power to heal his sick mother-in-law. Luke tells us that Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever. You know, it's possible. You know, sometimes people get sick, right? And, and I really don't believe that every sickness is, is from a, a, a personal attack from Satan. I don't necessarily believe that. But I believe that in this particular case, for sure, Jesus, the, the same word that, that, that Luke uses to say that he rebuked the demon and cast him out, is the same exact word. He rebuked this fever. There was something about this attack on Simon's mother-in-law that, that had the evil about it. And so he rebuked it. He rebuked the fever. And Luke says she immediately rose and began to serve them. The, the fever left her immediately. <laughs> One moment she is feeling like she's nearing death. You ever had like just a horribly high fever? Like it's like, oh man, I need to go to the bathroom, but it's just so far away. I can't possibly get up and get a glass of water. Somebody please bring me a water. You just, like, fevers are like that, aren't they, right? And you, to go from that to like, hey, what does everybody want for lunch? What, it's like, like that. 
This was a total and complete healing that Jesus performed for Simon's mother-in-law. But isn't this also like the type of response that I think Jesus expects from all of us? What a beautiful picture. We, we, we who have been forgiven of our sins, we've been restored back into a right relationship with God. He has healed us. He has healed the broken relationship between us and God. Don't you think that the right response is to say, thank you, Jesus, and with gratitude say, now what can I do for you? How can I live my life for you? It should be immediate. Those who have been forgiven much love much, the scriptures tell us. What an amazing picture, Simon's mother-in-law healed by Jesus and then devoting herself to an attitude of gratitude and service to him. So we've seen Jesus with authority of the scriptures. We've seen him over the, his authority over the forces of evil. We've seen his authority um, to heal those who are sick. Now it's time to rest, right? Time to take a nap. Not quite. Verse 40, we read, when the sun was setting, all, what does all mean? All, right? All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Luke says that when the sun was setting, when the sun was setting, everyone who had someone in their life who was sick or demon-possessed brought them to see Jesus. You know, after what took place in the morning synagogue service with the demon-possessed man, word probably traveled pretty quickly, right? They run home, they tell everybody what happened. And as soon as the sun goes down, they come back and they look for him at Simon's house. Why do you suppose they waited until sunset? Why didn't they just go home, grab their sick ones, and bring them to Jesus immediately? I heard it. It was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath. The Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and went till sundown on Saturday. So they had to wait in order to not break the Sabbath rules for how far you could travel or how much you could carry. Like, I know you're sick and I know Jesus can make you better, but we just got to wait just one more hour, one more hour, and then I'll bring you over to Simon's house, okay? And the text says that when they arrived, Jesus healed them all. He healed them all. Those who were sick with various illnesses and diseases, Jesus healed them fully like he had Simon's mother-in-law. By the way, I said a few moments ago that I don't believe every sickness is a personal attack from Satan. I will say this, that every sickness is a part of the fall. Every sickness and illness is part of the curse that fell on humanity as a result of sin. I will say that. Those who were plagued by demons, he set them free just like he had for the man in the synagogue that morning. He refused to allow them to speak because I believe he did not want the testimony of who he is to come through the mouths of demonic sources. He didn't want his testimony, oh, you're the Messiah, says the liar, 
right? That's not who he wanted testifying. He wanted his word and his miracles to confirm his identity, not the voice or the testimony of an evil spirit. But here's the thing that I really don't want you to miss in this, in this passage. After a long, long day of ministry activity, Jesus continued to make time for the people. Mark's gospel, he tells us that, listen, the whole city was gathered together at the door. That's probably a little bit of hyperbole there, but the point is, it's a crowd, right? I mean, like this standing room only, and there's people standing outside knowing that Jesus is inside here. And Luke tells us that Jesus, what does he say? He laid his hands on every one of them. Think about that for a second. You and I both know, we both know that Jesus with a word, with one word, he can say, whoa, a big crowd, healed. And everybody in that crowd would have immediately been healed. That's what they came for, right? That's what they came for. They came to be healed. But Jesus gives them so much more than just a healing. He gives them the personal touch of the Savior. Every single one of them, personally. Every person who was sick had Jesus' hand laid on them. Every person that was demon-possessed, Jesus put his hand on them. They received the personal touch of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that's really convicting for me. That's really convicting for me because in a, in a time where, where we find ourselves stretched so thin, we're running 100 miles an hour in 100 different directions, and it's like, I can't deal with one more person, right? Jesus laid his hands on every one of them. He didn't hurry them away. He cared. And listen, you're like, well, yeah, but he was Jesus. Yeah, he was fully man. Do not minimize the humanity of Jesus. He got tired just like everybody else. I know it's Sunday afternoons, like you ask my family, it's like, where's my nap? Like, I am so exhausted after this. I'll go home and I'll just nap for a couple hours. Jesus preached in the morning and then he cast out a demon and then he goes to Simon's house and he's hanging out with all his friends. And, it's, and then when oh, the day is finally over, nope. The whole town shows up and says, we need you, Jesus. And he said, you got me. I'm here. How? How did Jesus do it? How did he continue to walk step by step by the power of the Holy Spirit, ministering and doing the work that God the Father had for him? How did he do it? As busy as Jesus was, the answer is this. He consistently made time to get alone with his Father and pray. He consistently made time to get alone with his father and pray. Verse 42 says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. I don't know what time the, the, the service ended in Simon's house, but the whole town shows up. It's probably late into the night, don't you think? Mark tells us that while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. After ministering to others late, late, late into the night, Jesus still forced himself to get up early to go and be alone with his father. I can tell you what I would do. I can tell you what I did when I got back from Mexico. 
Got in late, long week. I slept in super late on Tuesday. I slept in super late on Tuesday. But Jesus understood that, that today had a lot of demands and tomorrow will too. And I cannot go into this next day without getting alone with my father to be filled and to, to hear what he has for me, to be connected to my father. It was so important for Jesus. I cannot emphasize enough, brothers and sisters, the need for us to spend time alone with God. You need it. And if you try to do the things that God is calling you to do in this life without spending time and being fed by him and and connecting with him through his word and through prayer, I am telling you, you and I both, we're gonna fall flat on our faces. We can't do it. We cannot do it. We need to prioritize our time in his presence. But I do want you to see something. I want you to see that Jesus didn't say to the people when they showed up, sorry, folks, prioritize my time in the presence of God. Um, Nope, come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. No, there was a real need in front of him and he met that need, but he met it because he had already been filled. He had already spent time with his father and he walked in obedience to the father each and every step, each and every day. Verse 42 says, or continues and says that the people sought him and they came to him. So you get it. He, he gets away to be alone with his father. And what happens? Oh, the sun comes up and they're like, hey, there he's out. See him up on the hill. You see him? Let's go. And so they go out and they came to him and they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. People show up first thing the next day. It's a good thing he got up before dark or he wouldn't have got any alone time with the Lord. What a difference if you think about it. What a difference between the people of Capernaum and the people of Nazareth. The people in Nazareth were trying to drive him away. They were actually trying to kill him. The people of Capernaum are begging him to stay. That begs the question, you know, is my heart more like the people of Nazareth or more like the people of Capernaum? Just longing to spend as much time as I can with Jesus. But Jesus knew his mission, didn't he? He was so in tune with the will of his father that he could confidently say, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And I really think that this would be a real temptation just to stay in Capernaum, don't you? They love me here. They love me. They're not trying to throw me over a cliff and uh, they, they feed me. It's, it's good. It would have been tempting to stay, but Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. I have, I've been, I have a purpose. I have a mission. I need to preach the good news to others as well. I was sent for this purpose is what Jesus said. And brothers and sisters, so are we. So are we. Jesus has called us to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to others. That's our purpose. That is our purpose. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah, we've seen that in this passage, haven't we? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Man, may we never be so comfortable with where we are at that we lose sight of our mission to bring the good news to others. Pastor Henry, Pastor Russ, Pastor Dan, and many others, they all had a mentor named Pastor Bob Frederick. Pastor Bob is now, to our dismay, but to his uh, joy, is now in the presence of his Lord and Savior. But I want to close our time this morning with the challenge that he would give to his mentees and the challenge that I heard him issue many times when he spoke here. Brothers and sisters, in the words of Bob Frederick, go and give them Jesus. That's your mission. Wherever the Lord takes you this week, whoever he puts in front of you, go and give them Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son. God, I pray that we are just blown away as we read about him. And we see the authority that he had, not only in the, in the words that he taught and the way he explained the scriptures, but the authority he had over, over, over evil spirits. The authority he had over sickness. Later, we're going to read, as we read Luke's gospel, with the, the authority that he had over death. <laughs> and he said that all authority has been given to him, which means authority over me and authority over all of my brothers and sisters here. And with that authority, God, your, your son told us to go and bring the good news of salvation that is available through him to bring that good news to others. And God, I pray that we would walk in obedience to that mission that he has given us. God, help us to bring the good news of Jesus to those around us. And God, I pray that as we walk in step with you, that we would recognize how badly we need you. We cannot do the work that you've called us to do without being connected to you. And so, God, I pray that we would prioritize our relationship with you. Make the time to be with you, to talk with you in prayer, to listen to you as you speak to us by your spirit and through your word and empower us to accomplish the mission that you've given us. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.